0: Hello, my name is Diane Schindler. You are listening to In the Know. This podcast show includes writing tips, travel tips, and my views of life from savvy and thoughtful to quirky and humorous. I hope you enjoy the show.
1: Crazily enough, uh, I started a software company about 15 years ago with some friends and Michael Crichton's book Prey was a foundational part I'll tell you a little about the book and a little bit about our software company right the book is 2002 it's a thriller about artificial intelligence and nanotechnology and in the book the scientists create nanoparticles that work together in something called swarms. Uh, And the concept follows things like ants, um, when how ants are, any ant individually is very stupid and has very small (laughs) 400 brain cells, but together ants can do great things. The wonderful behaviors that you see in nature, the animals or don't actually talk to each other. When birds flock or when fish swim in a school, they don't tell each other, you know, hey, let's go left or let's go right. <laughs> um, they really live by just a few rules, you know, swim in a tight ball, trying to swim close to another fish but try not to hit them and you can take a few simple set of rules and you see this wonderful emergent behavior they call it and the idea is you know every that you see these complex systems in with one species or species can collaborate together and have them together Um, and it's really pretty amazing so michael crichton's novel of course things go wrong and the nanoparticles you know resort to kill people and take over the world they become little (laughs) nano monsters In, of course classic Michael Crichton um, in his classic style but the theories are solid and I looked up we looked up (laughs) a lot of his book has actual Department of Defense patents behind it. Um, Not that he filed, of course, other people did. And how did we use this in the world of much less sexy retail inventory management, which is what I work in. But we use some of those ideas to say we're going to have um, very simple computer programs that can work autonomously and then interact with each other in simple ways and you get some very beautiful um behavior coming out of that so it was really fun and yeah everybody we had five founders and we all read the book beforehand and and we really uh, found it to be quite inspirational and uh, though we've sold the company it's still running today and it's still running our uh genetic algorithm. So what's the
0: outcome of that? What was the purpose?
1: Ours was to try to predict how much inventory you need to have throughout your supply chain. Oh, so I see. you have some little guys saying, I need more. I think customers want more. You've got some other little autonomous agents saying, well, I can get you some from here A from warehouse A or warehouse B. So it's like almost like logistics. It is. It is definitely logistics. It's it's trying to this particular that we did is trying to move your inventory through your supply chain and make sure that the end user has enough of it. But he is my all-time favorite.
0: We are listening to Linda Whitaker. She's a retail data scientist and a writer of science and technology thrillers. By day, she plays with numbers, by night, with words. She started writing around 2011 when she took her first mystery class with Ellen Hart, a prolific Minneapolis author. Many years of learning and perseverance have finally led her to her debut novel, The Crucible of Steel, a thriller. Linda resides with her husband in the mountains of Western North Carolina. She loves running in the forest, gardening, cooking, and playing with her dog and cat. Let's go back to this fascinating interview.
1: He's my all time favorite author because I think the science is actually so sound and he just takes that little leap of, well, what if, you know, what if you could get dinosaur DNA? What if the DNA kept in the amber, right? And then the rest is history. I
0: remember reading that book when (laughs) Jurassic Park,
1: when it first came out,
0: I was fascinated and I thought, how does he know all of this stuff? Mm -hmm. And he didn't stop there with his knowledge no he was, that's a big loss what a yes, loss yes absolutely tell
1: tell us about your book my book is also is based in a lot of factual science and it tries to be quite factual in in a nutshell my my elevator pitch um it's a fast-paced techno thriller with lots of twists and entanglements and a lot of science my book's about a young woman who discovers she's the product of a 150 year eugenics experiment. And now her creators have more planned for the planet than the production of a superior race. They need to save the world by getting rid of ordinary people. And our heroine, Georgia Steele, has to try to stop them before many people are killed and humanity forever changed. It's called the Crucible of Steel, and she's um, so it's her decision of does she try to find her family and try to discover this wonderful um, group of super humans or does she try to go against them and stop them? And Mm, uh, that's her dilemma. That's her dilemma. dilemma.
0: And where is the setting?
1: Um, It takes place in multiple places, primarily in Atlanta, Georgia um in upstate new york and in honduras have you traveled to honduras i have not been to honduras but i have been to um costa rica and guatemala and belize and panama and all across the virgin islands and mm-hmm. mexico and pretty much everywhere
0: why did Hond- you choose honduras
1: You know, I chose it because at the time I started writing this, it was the murder capital of the world. Also in the book, I talk about how it had been leveled by a hurricane Um, and I had to move the timeline a little bit, but that is actually true. Hurricane Mitch was devastating for their country about 20 years ago. And it was it just seemed like it was a great place to me mm-hmm. if you were going to have some real mayhem and really go in and really wreak a lot of havoc on some unsuspecting people, that this is a perfect place to do it. and so you
0: had to do a lot of research then i guess
1: i did i did a lot of research around where where i wanted to put it um like a lot of other places in central america they're quite exploited for their natural resources Mm -hmm. so there is you know a lot of intervention by international forces and that's very poor countries so they you know have to have to take it a lot so they're, they're kind of a and and they don't get a lot of attention you know, from from the rest of the world. So it, it's pretty much a good place if you're going to, you know, do some evil deed.
0: I'm compelled to ask you when you started it. When did ah, you start writing?
1: Yeah, I have two things. Yeah, I can like tell you that. Um, I also wouldn't mind if if I could tell you a little bit about the, the history also of the sure. science. Sure. Um, you know, I, I am so interested in um, mankind's um you know use of technology and a lot of times they're kind of misuse of technology Mm -hmm. starting early on i'm was fascinated with first of all, with Darwin, and I always, and there's a group of folks around that time. One of them is Francis Galton, who's a half cousin of Darwin. And one thing I'm, I'm amazed by early scientists ability to learn things without computers, Mm -hmm. and you know, the internet and calculators and all the and spaceships and everything else and, and you know, how these people are able to 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 discover all these things. And Darwin's cousin, Galton, you know, he just discovered things like statistics, you know, (laughs) like nothing much really. He's an early founder (laughs) of statistics. Um, He coined the term nature versus nurture. He did a whole, just all kinds of things in terms of that really was the first person to take measurements of people and try to understand how characteristics and traits were um, inherited. And, For him, it was purely scientific. And he, he, he was one of the first people to really try and measure humans and how human attributes were inherited, whether it was height or weight or intelligence or, um, or your health. And he, you know, found all those, those bell curves, right. And, And how people, you know, the, the whole idea of a normal curve and how mm-hmm. people are have certain height, but yet, you know, you can predict a population's, you know, heights or weights. And, and, and he was the first one to do that. He got taken up into the eugenics movement after that, they kind of took him along. But he really, unfortunately, because he was really always just really trying to be more objective, I think, from my research on him, and, and the galton institute is still quite around and you can look at it and they still say that they're they're very much into uh, objectively studying the intellect of people and the other thing that fascinates me as a scientist is how there is no freaked out people get when you talk about that when you talk about trying to study it like intelligence everybody loses it, right? They're willing to do that in animals, and, but, but never humans. And that idea of, um, if you could actually objectively try to form a race of superhumans, and they had actually, and somebody had done it, and they didn't get caught up in the idea of race, you know, what, what would happen? I and mean, what would those people look like today? And that's one of the key kind of things that kept sticking in my head when I made this book, when mm-hmm. I started this book. And so purely the first thing that jumped out at me automatically is they wouldn't be one race. They would be a mix of people because you would take the best of all the people around the world and try to make them into the best human. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's what we would find. And that's why our heroine, Georgia Steele, um, you know, ends up being a, a multiracial um person because, of course, she she's one of the super people. And the other aspect was if this super, if this secret society existed all this time and they had managed to quietly, you know, generation by generation, create um, a superhuman. Well, what would they think today? What would they think of us Today.
0: Today? This today, I know,
1: really exactly. Fortunately, (laughs) my book came out before coronavirus. Oh my gosh, or I finished it before coronavirus. Um, but you know, they would be probably not very happy with how we've taken care of our planet and Mm -hmm. how we've overpopulated it. And they, you know, would think that something has to be done. We we have to stop sitting out sitting on the sidelines and just preparing and trying to make a superhuman race we better do something or it's not going to be a planet for us to have our super race on. Mm-hmm. And those were kind of, um, and that's really what I thought. I thought, how would, you know, what would happen if she found out that she was one of these people and she tried to find more about it, she would discover, you know, kind of what they're up to right now. And that, that's kind of how she gets set on her way of trying to save the world. Again,
0: <laughs> when did you start? I know you don't oh, I know. I started
1: that. trying to save the world now. I started, <laughs> um, Uh, many years ago between around maybe eight or 10 years ago with these ideas floating in my head but being a mathematician my whole life I did not know how to write fiction I had written lots of very dry white papers but I didn't know you know how how to actually write so I had started you know, with a, a mystery class um, in Minnesota where I was living at the time with Ellen Hart, who's written a lot of uh, mysteries, a lot of cozies. And and I, I really had to learn every single bit of writing. I had to learn everything. I had to learn what makes a good story and what makes dialogue and what are characters and what is character arc. And realized that I didn't know anything about grammar <laughs> or <laughs> writing or... You know, when distinguishing a M dash from a hyphen from an ellipse. Oh my gosh, I can't believe believe you didn't know that. No, I I did not. I (laughs) did not. My poor proofreader, first proofreader told me I was so comma happy that she just lost. Oh, well, you know, that's the worst thing.
0: (laughs) So you have the scientific background that I want to talk about. But first, would you be willing to read Oh, sure.
1: Book? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'd love to. Um, I'm going to read the very, the, the opening chapter, the opening chapter for you. And it's a letter. It's a letter dated April, April, 1863 in London. My dear Berkeley, I have just come back from Down House, where I was refused entrance and sent away by the great man himself, Charles, or Mr. Darwin, as he would have it, would not acknowledge my letter to him, nor except, accept invitation to discuss my application of his theories. I trust that some of this is due to the fact that our mutual friend, his half-cousin Francis Galton, shared with me his manuscript without knowledge or permission. This does not change the validity of the argument I have put forth. Natural selection is nature's method, or gods, depending upon which side you take, of changing the face of the world. I prefer the former. Selective breeding is already the method used by the farmer, which Darwin himself cites as proof of his theories. Human selection is simply the next logical step. Just as we can breed livestock to resist disease, a dog to watch over the livestock, or a fancy pigeon simply to please our eyes. We can also breed man to be stronger and smarter and woman to be more flattering to the eye. We can create the mankind we want to have. Now that we have this knowledge, we must use it. We owe it to ourselves. Or if you prefer, we owe it to God so that we may further his magnificent work. We must be the guardians of humanity. I did not tell the notable man that I have already started these experiments, though neither he nor I will live to see the result as I expect it to take 10 or even 30 generations to yield any significant change and we will be long dead by then. But this does not weaken my resolve and to this I am certain that my name will eventually be more famous than the veritable Mr. Darwin. Yours sincerely, C.T. Edwards.
0: Very nice. Boy, you have set this up.
1: <laughs> and I would love to say um, for your audience, um, there is a wonderful resource out there. It's called the Darwin Letters. Um, it's by, I believe, the Cambridge University has done this. And it, I have the link on my website to it, actually. It is so wonderful. You can read over five thousand letters to and from darwin and his colleagues of the time and so i really tried to get the the, the feel of the tone of these of these letters of how they're writing each other i was impressed
0: yeah. with your word it's choice
1: fascinating
0: yeah so. from years years Thank gone you. by though you who, who are only only a mathematician you said you can't write seems to me you really captured <laughs> the historical perspective and your and your word choice there
1: well thank you yeah it's really really a wonderful resource and it's it's a lot of fun to to read and see with how they talked and um and there anyway it's not all scientific there's a lot of letters in there that are they're personal in nature too Mm -hmm.
0: I'm going to stop for a moment and thank you for listening to In The Know. If you have an interest in being interviewed, please send me an email, diane at dianeabroad.com, and I will forward to you the interview request form. What we do here on In The Know, we make sure that we help authors reach a different audience, the podcast listeners audience. Thank you so much. But I really wanted to ask you about your background and how it oh, relates to this book. But can sure. we start with what you're a data scientist and and
1: so what does a data scientist <laughs> do? So a data scientist really means um, someone whose focus is on under I think it's understanding information in the context of a business problem. Data scientists learn a lot of standard techniques which can be applied across different industries. Data science has really been brought about now by the advances we've made in computing science. And it's a a marriage of computing science and math. It's understanding how to solve problems in the context of computing power that's available to you. Um, and a lot of the focus now are on things like artificial intelligence and machine learning. If you've heard those terms floating around, mm-hmm. um, I've been working with those for many, many years, for 20 years, been working with artificial intelligence, again, going back to our days of, uh, of Prey, of Michael Crichton mm-hmm. and his uh, swarm intelligence. So in a short, that's what they do. We try to marry math with technology to come up with the best answers. Usually the best data science specialize in a particular industry. Uh, because it's so important to marry the business problem, the math and the, and the science and the technology together. And I happen to work in the field of retail data science. I work in inventory management and I work in merchandising. So when you go to the store and see what the retailer is showing you and what they want you to buy, um, we help with that. Oh, <laughs> I run to the idea of marketing. So you're talking
0: about doing almost doing market research.
1: Yep. Yeah, I don't. Yes, there, there is. I don't do the research. So companies like um, Nielsen, you know, specialize in research. Um, we apply it. I work for individual retailers, so we help tell them what they need to stock, how much they need to price it at, how much inventory they need to have, what kind of promotions they need to run. Um, we work in across fashion, across grocery. And is this
0: based, is this based on the behavior of their, of their clientele? Yes. Okay.
1: But we also look at things like, yeah, and there also can be factors like weather though, can determine how your clientele behaves, right? For example, if you're going to the grocery store and you're about to have a hurricane come in, you're going to shop very differently than on a sunny day with no threats, right? Or if you have COVID, let me, yeah, we've been working a lot with our clients to obviously um, get them through this COVID crisis. Yeah. What
0: a challenge. Wow. (laughs) How then does being a data scientist help or hurt writing science fiction? That's what uh, I want to know inquiring yeah. minds want to know
1: I think one way it obviously helps a lot and then I'm really familiar with a lot of the technologies and I love to um, explain the technologies a little bit in my book I think I do that more than most tech writer most writers of tech thrillers or in the science fiction genre will gloss over a lot of things. And I like to tell people a little bit about how it works, a little bit. You know, like, how do you ensure that your emails? that you could pass information safely and securely what does it mean to encrypt something as Mm -hmm. an example I'll tell a little bit about that and I think that maybe that helps or hurts me I think it might hurt me and that I'm um, I want to make sure I got as much of it right as I could in some places I did have to take some shortcuts but um, you know by and large I I think it 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 helps because in my job every day, I have to explain complex math to my retail clients. So I think that's what I try to do here. I try to explain complex concepts of technology or science and try to do it in a way that I thought everybody could understand. And, and I guess that's, that's kind of what I like to do.
0: I have an assumption that you had to make some choices because some of it is too technical. And yet at yes. some point. You have to explain some of that technology in order to for your reader to get the concept, and so it's really a balancing act Definitely. not to not to bore people yes. who know nothing,
1: yes. and not to get it wrong for people <laughs> who know a lot. Exactly. Exactly. So I had um, some. I had experts all along the way helped me. I have a professor from the University of Minnesota. It's a microbiology professor who helped me with how you would create a superhuman in the first place, right? And how you would, um, you know, try to get rid of the average humans and to make sure that was See, science. I would be gone. <laughs> I'm gone out of your novel.
0: But I'm well, not going to take it personally.
1: <laughs> well, most of us are. So they don't have to get rid of everybody. You know, I had a technology expert to help me with, you know, how um, the web works and how, how does the Wide web work. And I had, so I had an expert expert um, Ancestry person who's an expert wow. in, in, in doing genealogy research. And so, yeah, I, I made sure that, and the, the here is actually the worst part of writing a tech thriller and taking, you know, eight years to do it is the technology would change on me over time. And mm-hmm. then Ancestry was not a huge deal when I started writing this and it's exploded. And, you know, everybody can stick their DNA up on the web um, oh, for your listeners, you may want to, you know, be careful or at least know what you're doing, and the, because if you stick your DNA out there, you know, people are going to get it. It depends how you feel about that. But, you know, that that wasn't. Wasn't so available. You couldn't just stick your DNA up and all of a sudden find your fourth cousin living, you know, in Africa. You just you couldn't do that before.
0: I can comment on that a little bit. I mean, I don't do ancestry.com, but I did have my DNA tested, so I know where I came from. But Mm -hmm. I didn't get involved in it because I tend to overdo. I don't do anything at a hundred percent. I always do things more, and I knew I'd get addicted to it, so I never began. So I haven't done anything with it. But now. I get emails from people who say, oh, you know, you're a third or fourth cousin to such and such. Right. And I go in and look at them. But <laughs> so I go in and look at just the general information because I haven't purchased mm-hmm. the software and someone else has done this work. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Someone else has done That's this right. work. And I'm thinking, how do you and I'm not sure why they're in my my ancestry page. Who are they? And mm-hmm. are they just. Are they just hobbyists, and suddenly they're filling out my pages? I don't know what that's about. That's right.
1: Yeah. So you've your pages can be public or private. You can check. You can can. So some of these those site those are kind of old school genealogy research where you Mm -hmm. actually map people back. Right. And I try to find my. Um, my grandparents and they may have somebody else may have a slightly different name and they and I my grandmother was Harriet maybe somebody called her Hattie and they you try to figure out that's actually the same person and you you keep working your way back that way and so I think yeah you can make that private or public but yes it's like just like there's kind of crowdsourcing of a lot of things now with the web there's kind of our whole mapping of our ancestors um which is interesting and scary but the other part of if you have your dna tested and you give your dna Uh, to these sites to use well now you don't need that actual work of mapping because you can just look at people and you can know if you are related if you have the same mother cousins you know all of that they can tell you you know we are may not know how but they will know that you are you know third cousins on your mother's side and that is you know, that's not just creepy in terms of, well, somebody calls you and they tell you their third cousin, you know, but you're, their law enforcement is making great use of these. They yes. may find, yeah, they yeah. may find a DNA of a perpetrator and they can compare it and run it through these giant databases, millions of people and say, well, you know, I know you're not the person, but you have like a first cousin who did, is responsible for this. That I haven't taken up in my book, but there are certainly many, many books and real life stories happening every day about, you know, tracking down people based on the DNA that you may not knowingly have put up there for that purpose. And mm-hmm. that's kind of, uh, anyway, a lot of ethical issues that, you know, we should probably think more about as a... um as a species and yes and i doubt that we will until it becomes <laughs> no, exactly. uh, uh,
0: we won't until it becomes really prob- problematic for exactly. a greater group of people otherwise we're just flying blind exactly
1: technology is moving so quickly it moves in front of the um in front of laws right it moves faster than than our legal system Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, Snowden, that ha- his that happened while I was, I had written up a whole, whole parts about how the government could track you. And then Snowden came out and I was like, oh, it's so much worse than I had like ever even conceived of. So <laughs> it was so much worse than than I, you know, was throwing out there, which is usually the case in our development of technology. And, you know, I think in some ways, science fiction, leads actual I think science fiction gives a lot of ideas. Yeah, the people doing the science and they say you know, like, Oh, wow, tracking people via their cell phone records check. Yeah, let's get right on that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: So. Tell me about places that you traveled that have had some impact on your book. So
1: I lived in the Virgin Islands and have for 10 years in the U.S. Virgin Islands. But we traveled extensively around the Caribbean and um, Central America. And so I was able to kind of see firsthand, you know, how people live there and see um the topology of the land and how you know being independent um, and having to capture all your own water and and live more um, much more independently without you know having home depots on every corner you can run to and mm-hmm. and that that influenced a lot of my understanding of how it might be be to live there and then I part of the book in, in Atlanta you know takes place at um, in or around the Georgia Institute of Technology, where I did go to school, because you write what you know, it's easier, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so one of my characters is a a professor. And uh, yeah, so I just borrowed blatantly from my um, background, my personal where I lived in Atlanta. And I do go back there, Uh, I still work out of Atlanta, my company's based in Atlanta. So, um, you know, has a place in my heart, and I think I'm able to hopefully um, hopefully show that. So mm-hmm. those are probably, probably the two primary places.
0: Do you want to tell me about any reviews you have about your book?
1: Gosh, well, I have some very nice reviews. And I have some nice review from Sally Handley, who's a author and, and a really nice review from her. I am so humbled and honored. I can't even tell you. So she says, um, move over Michael Crichton. There's a new science thriller writer on the scene and her name is Ellen Whitaker. In her debut novel, The Crucible of Steel, Whitaker proves herself to be a master storyteller and a gifted writer. Rooted in Darwin's theory of natural selection, the plot of The Crucible of Steel revolves around a simple premise. If we have the ability to craft a more perfect human, through genetic selection and alteration and speed up the natural selection process, why shouldn't we? The novel deals with the ethical quandaries facing a world struggling to keep up morally with the choices now possible due to technological advances. Technology consultant Georgia Steele is no computer nerd. This kick-ass protagonist is both brilliant and tough and perhaps the only one who can stop a secret organization from ridding the world of individuals it deems to be inferior. As she searches to uncover secrets about her past, Georgia finds herself tested beyond her wildest expectations. Whitaker does a remarkable job of relating scientific information in understandable terms, all the while providing the reader with a roller coaster action ride. Reader beware, this techno thriller will keep you turning the pages long after you plan to turn out the lights
0: bravo uh, that's an incredible review thank you tell me i mean i can't wait to hear other stories you're working on i have a sequel going aha i do so a sequel from this book
1: yes the book takes place the crucible of steel in the fall of 2019 and my, at the end of it, Georgia has some unfinished business with the guardians, who are the, the guardians of mankind, the secret organization that has produced the superior strain of race of people. At the beginning of 2021, we we in the middle of 2021, when the next book opens, Georgia is still trying to find them. And she gets thrown into another group of folks who are also trying to find the guardians. And they're not so nice people either. So she's kind of caught between a rock and a hard place um, in a company that is actively changing people. Instead of using natural selection technique, they are using a lot of technological advances. This was, I was inspired by Elon Musk, who is doing Uh brain implants right now, if you've read about his has a company that is coming up with brain implants. No. Yes. Yes, he is. He is. And there is another book that came out a long time ago called The Singularity by Ray Kurzweil. And he has long espoused this idea of the singularity, which is when people and technology become one. And that uh, obviously is the is the topic of a lot of science fiction books along the way. But again, science fiction now becomes reality. Becoming reality, yes. So. Yes, if I look up uh, quickly, Elon Musk and his brain chip. He has unveiled. They have are testing it in pigs right now with a coin size computer chip. He's powering it as a Fitbit in your skull, predicted to give people one day give people telepathy, cure paralysis, or enable superhuman vision. Need I say more? <laughs> I'm shaking. I'm sitting here shaking because the future is now. So Neuralink, it's called the Neuralink chip. And uh, my story, um, yes, has Georgia pitted against a Elon Musk sort of character um, and still trying to um, find the guardians. You have
0: created (laughs) such an interesting book where it is extremely timely. Yeah. Isn't it? I don't know. Are you going to take eight years? Promise no. me you're not going no, to take no, eight, no, eight years.
1: No, 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 because no, no, Because Elon will, <laughs> will have. No, exactly. Right. Who knows what will happen? No, 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 no. Because um, first, I've learned how to write which has been a wonderful thing. And second, it's way easier when you have your characters already. I don't have to, like, they, they actually constrain you, I think, in a good way. You know, I've mm-hmm. got, they constrain where they live and how they act and how they speak. I don't have to worry about that stuff anymore. Now I just have to kick them out on their next adventure.
0: That's right. It's mm-hmm. just to create that plot. And it sounds yeah. to me like
1: you already are ahead of that. Well, I, I,
0: am, I am so impressed. And I'm glad by the way, that I was able to wean my way in uh, to your launch, launching book um, event and meet you. Honor is mine, Diane. And I was lucky enough to win a copy of your book. Mm -hmm. I haven't read it yet because I'm (laughs) steeped in finishing my own, but I'm looking forward to reading this. This was a fascinating Thank you. Fascinating to me. And, and I know that it's just the tip of the iceberg. It seems to me that you already have a third book in mind.
1: Uh, I I do, actually, but I got to get through the second one. (laughs) And, and the other thing I have is a story. um, One of the characters in the book, as we mentioned, is her name is Emiko. And she's, um, the way that Georgia finds, I'm not telling you much more than's on the back cover, so it's not giving too much away. The way that Georgia initially finds out that she's part of this super race is she comes across a near twin of herself, a younger but almost twin. And that is Amico. The, it's, so the short story available on my website is the story of how Amiko actually found Georgia and how she did that. And so it, it reveals a little bit more about um, just about about her and um, and them meeting and her. And,
0: and that's free on your website. Yes. Yep. Mm hmm. Well, I'm going to have in the program notes, a link to your website, to that Amico page for people. So people can access that immediately going to have in the show notes, all your uh, contact information and a a photo of you and also the book cover and, and all kinds of wonderful information. This has
1: been such a pleasure. The pleasure is mine.
0: Thank you so much for listening to In The Know. If you would like to support the show, you can do so by subscribing and sharing it with your family and friends. You can like this episode, leave a comment, and even add a rating. Your support is very important to the success of In The Know. Thank you for listening and see you next time.